Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It's packed with benefits to help unlock more value from your business purchases. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. Welcome to this CNBC special, Taking Stock. I'm Mike Santoli. Jim Cramer is off tonight. A mixed day for the markets as investors digest more commentary from central bankers and consider the potential for more chip export restrictions between the U.S. and China. The Dow finishing down 74 points at the close, then the S&P 500 closing virtually flat, while the Nasdaq was the relative outperformer of the three major averages, ending the day higher, up nearly three-tenths of one percent. As Wall Street weighs these hurdles tonight, we'll help you make sense of the action and find opportunities in it all. Coming up, passing the test. We just got the results from the Fed's latest checkup on the health of the big banks' balance sheets. We'll bring, break down the winners and losers in the wake of Silicon Valley Bank's collapse. Plus, chip wars. The White House reportedly weighing new restrictions on chip exports to China, what the potential regulation could mean for the red-hot semiconductor space going forward. And Apple's market cap is nearing the $3 trillion milestone. We will chart out how the iPhone maker got here and where it could be headed next. Take a look at how the uh, averages have uh, finished or almost finished the month of June. We have two trading days left. You see the Russell 2000, an outperformer so far this month, up almost 7%. That's a year-to-date number, but uh, almost uh, 5% on a monthly basis. Uh, Been a bit of a catch-up trade. You have seen the small caps, which really lag coming into June, perform well, although the NASDAQ continues to be uh, the destination for the most urgent buying. Uh, You see it here up 21% uh, on that one-year basis. It is up near 30 percent year to date. Let's now dig deeper into the day's market action. We'll bring in Carol Schleif, chief investment officer at BMO Family Office and Delano Sapporo, financial advisor at New Street Advisors and a CNBC contributor. Uh, good evening uh, to you both. Uh, Carol, love, you, love your take on the general tone of this market recently. Clearly, uh, it's been feeding off of a greater sense of confidence that the economy can perhaps forestall a fall into recession, maybe not see one coming very soon. Also, some comfort with the Fed stance of a pause, but maybe uh, some hikes to come, as Jay Powell told us earlier. Does that make sense to you as a premise for uh, this market continuing higher, or have we used up uh, all those things? I think it makes sense in terms of you've got a, the most investors have a foot in both camps, both the lean into be think optimistically and to be a little bit defensive yet, just in case that that stable scenario for the economy doesn't play out. But we have seen some really strong economic numbers so far this week that would be supportive and of that scenario in terms of housing prices, consumer confidence, even the manufacturing numbers that we saw out earlier this week are supportive of an economy that's tapering off the heavy boil it was at early coming out of the pandemic, but just to some nice level. But also an eye tilted towards the Fed and trying to determine is the good news legitimately good news or is it good news, meaning that the Fed will feel compelled to raise not just one more time, but several more times in here to really try to push things towards its 2 percent target. 
Yeah, Delano, I mean, the market's message has been relatively encouraging in the sense that more recently you have things like industrials, consumer cyclicals, transportation stocks doing pretty well. Defensive areas of the market backing off. Seems like the market is pricing in uh, a softer landing if we get a landing at all scenario. Uh, Do you think that's too optimistic? Is it just a relief rally? How would you play it? I don't think it's a re- relief rally. I do think, um, recent, as of recently, you know, if you look at the short term, the near term, I think we might be a little, a little bit optimistic here. Because if you're looking at, as Carol was mentioning, like look at cumulative inflation numbers from 2021, 2023. They're still really obviously at a, a fast, fast pace. And so I think that leans to the Fed uh, um, still sticking to that mandate of uh, hiking rates uh, potentially in July. And then, you know, if what the market isn't braced for that, which I don't think the market is potentially braced for a couple more hikes, maybe one, you know, that could be a near-term correction um, and a potential shock to the market. I, I think, you know, what we're going to see is potentially more tightening as well, uh, especially when it comes to the banks, um, especially if we get, you know, more rate, rate hikes. So that's the near-term risk for equity holders. But I think if you look at those opportunities coming in the coming weeks, those may be buying opportunities for folks that are buying, you know, mega cap tech that's performed really, really well since the start of the year. And if you mentioned just Apple earlier, even from a year back, right? So, so I think those are the opportunities right now that investors want to be paying close attention to. Carol, how do you think about the rapid uh, rise in the mega cap tech stocks, the idea that this open-ended opportunity in AI somehow is, is justification for a radical revaluation of things like NVIDIA uh, and the rest of it? You've seen sentiment turn very, very uh, bullish and optimistic toward that, uh, that area. Is that something you want to fade and allocate out of uh, or chase? Um. Probably neither in terms of <laughs> in terms of cutting a swath down the middle of it, because it's important to remember that a lot of the eye popping numbers on the averages year to date came from that very narrow list. As you alluded to in June, we've seen a broadening in some of that, which is very helpful in that. And there's a lot of opportunities to play. It is interesting when you look at some of those names that have reported they've rallied um, amazingly on the AI play. But when you look at the earnings and the numbers they've turned in, their valuations are are flat to down some from where they were pre, pre-announcement, pre if you will. So it bears watching, but like anything, it also bears watching, will government get involved in restricting semiconductor sales to China further? Will, will government get inv- more involved in regulation? But there's a lot of interesting intermediate and longer-term plays that AI will touch on, but so will a lot of other thematic plays in terms of infrastructure rebuild, greening of the grid, medical transformation. There's a lot of stuff going on in the United States, which makes the United States a pretty attractive place. As we saw when we lined up all the central bankers today for that conversation earlier, and you started looking at comparative economics, the United States is a pretty attractive place to be. Yeah, it is uh, seemingly distinguishing itself on multiple fronts in that sense, both better on the inflation and the growth side. And Delano, though, I I do wonder, uh, the market has been pretty good at digesting this message of higher rates for longer at, to this point. Uh, well, assumingly, you know, assumingly we're going to get some more relief on inflation. That's part of the underlying thesis here for why the Fed stance can uh, eventually go to, uh, to a static state. Uh, but do you think actually that we have to still worry about the lagged effects of higher rates? Everyone is still kind of pinning uh, their expectations to this idea that at some point the undertow of higher rates is going to ha- be a drag on the economy. Yeah, I think that is is definitely something that uh, bears watching. Uh, you know, I think 
Uh, we know that the, some of the data and, and some of the effects uh, will take a lag. Um, if you look at different areas in real estate, and it, there's still hot areas. If you look at the southeast and Tampa, Miami. So just in general, when we're looking at you know what the Fed's policy is going to be, I think they're even taking this this past month to pause to see more of the data. And I think investors have to do the same. Um, if you're looking at also for for investors' earnings coming out, I think a lot of the inflation data is going to and the inflation effects are playing a part for, for all companies across the board. And the earnings this coming quarter is going to be really, really crucial to see how companies have, one, pushed out how companies are evaluating guidance and also how they fared over the past quarter. So so I think that effect is, is definitely something for investors to watch. And for, from my standpoint, I think, one, you can take this opportunity to rebalance your portfolios to reflect a potentially more cautious position at the moment in the near term. And then also look for opportunities that have pulled back that, that might be really attractive. Carol, um, as somebody who, I guess, advises these sort of large pools of money that want to be around for a long period of time, how are you thinking about expected returns? We have the S&P 500. It's up, you know, 25 percent off the lows in October, Uh, at least from a top down basis. The valuation doesn't look particularly cheap. Um, I think even on like a trailing three and five year basis, you've had pretty decent returns right here. So how are we set up for new money right now uh, to, to reap rewards in the years to come? We've definitely been on the path of advising a balanced risk portfolio or risk posture with a variety of asset classes and not getting too bold in one camp or another, not getting too bold, expecting great things or expecting to batten the hatches. And so that balanced portfolio, that balanced risk portfolio has been important. We came into the year expecting both equities and fixed income to return more along the lines of historic averages. And actually through, if you equal weighted the S&P through May, you saw a flat performance for most stocks through May. You've only seen that better performance broadening out now. So we still expect that that upper single digits, low double digits for fixed or for equities for the year. And we feel like the yield curve is pretty attractively based. We're also recommending there's a variety of things that are not correlated to the markets, but correlated instead to um, to weather events, things like catastrophe bonds, mm. things like structured credit, um, structured notes, and a variety of ways to build in some insurance into the portfolio, if you will. Plus, having a healthy allocation to cash these days pays mm-hmm. for the first time in a very long time. Yeah, there's no doubt that uh, there are alternatives uh, at this point uh, across the asset classes. Carol uh, Delano, thanks so much. Appreciate the time today. Thanks for having me. All right. The uh, ECB, meantime, holding its annual monetary policy conference in Portugal today. The top four central bankers in the world spoke on a panel moderated by our own Sarah Eisen and all said they expect global inflation to persist much longer than expected. We are data dependent. Uh, We will decide on a meeting by meeting basis. But we know uh, that we have ground to cover. And if our baseline uh, stands, then we also know that uh, we will very likely hike again in, uh, in July. One of the striking things about the UK is that the size of the labour force is smaller than it was at the outbreak of COVID. So we have had a, a shrinkage of the labour force. We're seeing some reversal of that now, but we're still not back to where we were pre-COVID. So that is, that is causing uh, you know, the position in the labour market to be very tight. We've been for a long time trapped in a zero inflation, zero inflation expectations equilibrium. So we've been trying very hard to move this to a 2% inflation, 2% expectations equilibrium. Uh, To do so, we had to uh, 
de-anchor expectations from zero. There may be social costs associated with restoring price stability. The social costs of failing to restore price stability will be higher in, in almost all likely cases. We've seen what that looks like, and we, you know, it's it, it's uh, it's just something that we have to do. It's it's the the you know one of the principal things that society counts on us to accomplish, and and I think we all feel committed to accomplishing it. Let's bring in Julia Coronado, founder and president of Macro Policy Perspectives, to weigh in on uh, these messages. Julia, it, it's a resolute one across the board, seemingly. Uh, you know, Chair Powell just consistently reluctant to declare victory uh, on the inflation fight. Everyone else acknowledging some structural reasons inflation might stay high and therefore rates might have to go higher. Markets seem accepting of this. Are we taking them on their word and it, that, that this is working? Yeah, so, I mean, they, they did sound, they all struck a unified hawkish tone on the one hand. On the other hand, they all kind of acknowledged that they don't think they're far from where they're uh, trying to go. So uh, Chair Powell emphasized how much they've done, that one of the reasons for skipping June was just they've done so much that now they're sort of slowing down and seeing whether they've done enough. So the idea that they've got another rate hike to maybe even three wouldn't be as damaging to market sentiment, especially given why they're doing that, which is that the, the economies and the labor markets across the globe have just been tremendously resilient. For sure. He did emphasize the element of time. So, you know, the, a prolonged period of time with rates up in this area perhaps yes. is what's going to be uh, this next phase of, of seeing if we can restrain the economy. Have we learned anything about the interplay, though, of unemployment, inflation, and Fed policy over this period uh, that, in fact, yeah. unemployment is down as we've gone up by five percentage points in rates? Yeah. And, you know, what's really striking is that that is a dynamic that is not unique to the U.S., that uh, Governor Bailey talked about the same. The European uh, continental labor markets are seeing the same thing, um, something we refer to as labor hoarding, which is the idea that given how hard it was for companies to staff up during the peak of the labor market, they're inclined to hold on to their workers for longer, even as revenue growth slows. And that could give the economy and labor markets more resiliency that could facilitate the uh, the hoped for soft landing um, if we can strike that balance, bring the inflation pressures down. And Chair Powell ended on that note. That was the optimistic tone when, when Sarah asked you know, what makes him, what gives him hope? He said, you know, this has just been a really resilient labor market, and that gives him hope that they can bring inflation down without too hard a landing, or, or he said, too, uh, too extreme a rise in unemployment. So um, that's the good news coming out of all of these economies. For sure. Yeah. He also did seem to give a nod in the direction of some of the forward indicators of inflation getting a little bit more friendly, you know, the shelter related costs and things like that. That's something the market uh, likes to hear as well. What role do you think the the sort of regional bank stress we saw a few months ago has in the Fed's thinking and then even into the economy in general? Do we are we waiting for that shoe to drop? Yeah, I mean, that that is something Chair Powell was very clear about today. He was clear about it in his congressional testimony last week that that is one reason that they paused uh, rate hikes in June, uh, that when we see a period of bank stress like we've seen, you tend to see a wave of credit tightening above and beyond what you'd get just from higher interest rates from the Fed. 
but that it takes some time for that to unfold. So they haven't seen it yet in the data, but you wouldn't really expect to have seen it yet. Uh, so by slowing things down, that gives them some time to see whether that is in fact going to materialize and do some of the work for them. Uh, so it, he was pretty clear that at least for him, and he said, which kind of reflects there might be a divergence of views on the committee. He said, at least for me, that was a reason that we that we didn't raise rates in June. Right. Uh, now, the market has at times been reluctant to give up the idea that rates would probably be on the downswing before very long. Now, some of those yeah. perceived cuts or anticipated cuts have come out of the market. Do you read that as essentially a recession call by the market or is it just that's the direction where the risk lies right now? And so you have to account for it. It's really hard to um, parse between those scenarios when you're looking at the forward curve in interest rates. Um, you know, the curve has sort of leveled out for a longer period before those cuts kick in next year. Uh, I think that's more in line with the Fed's um, sort of baseline scenario of a gradual soft landing. But it could also be consistent with a, a recession uh, that, that kicks in turn of the year, early next year. Uh, and leads the Fed to cut rates. So it's hard to parse between those just looking at the curve itself. For sure. Yeah, it seems like the market's aggregate sort of risk management function is is, is pointing that way. Um, Julia, great to talk to you. Thanks so much. My pleasure. All right. Uh, as we head to a break, take a look at Micron. Those shares on the move after the company reported earnings. Uh, you see them up about 2.5%. We'll be breaking down those results next. We're just getting started on this CNBC special, Taking Stock. Tonight, Micron reports a full breakdown of the semiconductor space. Plus, feeling the pressure, you're not alone. Don't let stress tests turn your hair gray. And home wreckers, an outlook on housing for those who fear the roof is on fire. When we return. When you're hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging to connect with candidates faster. Plus, 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. Join more than three and a half million businesses worldwide that use Indeed. Listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash madmoney. Just go to Indeed.com slash madmoney right now and support this show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash madmoney. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Welcome back. Micron earnings out after the bell. The chipmaker reporting a top and bottom line beef for its fiscal third quarter. CEO Sanjay Marotra saying that the recent ban of its chips in China is a significant headwind that's impacting the company's outlook and recovery. 
All of this coming after a report from the Wall Street Journal that the Biden administration is considering restrictions on chip exports to China. The news hitting stocks like NVIDIA, that stock down more than 3% at its lows for the day, while NVIDIA's CFO downplayed the immediate impact of such a ban. She did say additional moves could hurt future growth. So what could these restrictions mean for the chip sector as a whole? Let's bring in Patrick Moorhead, founder, CEO, and chief analyst at More Insights and strategy. Patrick, um, yeah, NVIDIA came, was, was down on this news, but I mean, it's still up for the week. It's up 180 percent year to date. It seems as if the market is not panicked about this prospect. How should we think about these threats and, and restrictions as it relates to, uh, to demand for these companies? Yeah, so companies like NVIDIA, right, rocket ship over the last six months. I mean, they're up 163 percent. Uh, any blip of potential bad news short term that's going to have a little bit of an impact. But I'm recommending that we all look at this long term, which is we're at one of these big industry inflection points. And I recognize that people throw that term around, but this is big, right? This generative AI is as big as smartphones. And I was a skeptic when it first came out that it would be as big as something like that. But if you're looking for long-term growth, uh, companies like uh, NVIDIA, and I think for that matter, Micron are going to take advantage of this long-term boom. And, uh, and they'll be able in, in a timely way, you think, to take advantage of this ac across the world? I guess the question is, how much has the market already yeah. given NVIDIA credit for growing at an incredible rate over years to come? And how much uh, more is there to be realized? Yeah, so I've given, I think the market has given them a lot of credit, which I think they deserve because they essentially have a 100% market share in the training of these complex models and probably close to 75% market share uh, in, in the data center. So I think a lot of that is built in, but I still think it has more to run. Things like China though pop up and it scares investors. Mm -hmm. And I listened and I, I read to uh, what, the, what the company's CFO said, and, and I do buy into that because quite frankly, when you're looking at a 60% upside, like we saw in the data center forecast, and we're talking about maybe a 5 to 10% hit, not that it's noise, but it's not something that's going to be a catastrophic uh, short term and even long term, uh, 90 to 95% of NVIDIA's uh, data center share comes outside of China, regardless of, of what happens to the future. Can China afford, I, mean, I know this is a report about the Biden administration restricting exports there, but can China afford not to import everything from the rest of the world and, and essentially try and, and keep up? Because there was, you know, there's also been restrictions on the equipment going in there. And we have the United States trying to essentially, you know, reshore all the uh, as much production as possible. With generative AI, I'm going to be really clear. China absolutely needs access to global semiconductors and global semiconductor chip making equipment uh, for the future. Without that, they're somewhat dead in the water. They can do it, but it's going to take a lot more time. So imagine, let's just say, if NVIDIA's new hardware accelerates these large models by a factor of 10, and even though NVIDIA is shipping in a lower performance version into China already, they can do it, but it's going to be slow. So they, they have to get access to this technology mm -hmm. to keep pace with the rest of the world. And 
this is where I think the Biden administration sees this as a negotiating shit. I mean, this debate, this struggle goes back a decade when China was blocking companies like Cisco, IBM, and Microsoft, and by the way, still blocking Google, Facebook, Instagram, mm -hmm. uh, Twitter. So only now is the U.S. responding to really what China did a decade ago. Mm -hmm. uh, now, the market has been very targeted for the most part in who it's kind of giving that credit to that we talked about in terms of being able to leverage this new trend. Uh, who's losing out uh, on a relative basis? I guess the question is, there's an investment binge right now, people racing to catch up and, and build capacity in AI. Uh, what's not getting bought uh, in that context? Yeah, I think that if you look at, uh, well, first of all, if we look at the winners, which are the NVIDIAs, the Broadcoms, the AMDs, uh, the Marvells, right, the chip companies, let's call them the the pick picks and shovels. And then if you look at the cloud enablers, right? The AWS, the the Azure, uh, the Google Cloud. It's really the companies who either don't have the engineering talent to move the ball forward and integrate uh, generative AI. But the biggest question we should all be asking, though, just to look at is, are these companies going to make incremental revenue? Uh, are they going to get it through taking market share from the slow movers? Mm -hmm. Are they going to take it from growing the market? That's the question that people need to be asking more of. Um, AMD is going to be a big winner in the future as well, just not uh, right now. And the companies who aren't necessarily going to participate in this boom short term are uh, those companies, those chip makers that are putting the smallest chips into the industrial side. Now, mm. that'll come in three, four uh four years down the road, but those markets just move a lot slowly. Mm -hmm. So if you're looking at it long-term or, or short-term, they're likely not going to participate quickly. But if you look at long-term, uh, I think everybody in, this is going to be a virtuous cycle that feeds not only hardware companies uh, and the picks and the shovels, but also those software companies and software as a service companies. Yeah, that seems to be the uh, the growing hope uh, and anticipation. We'll see how it plays. Uh, Patrick, thanks a lot. Good thanks. To with you. All right, coming up, bank stress test results are in in the wake of real stress to the banking system earlier this year. We're going to dive into that data next. At the UPS Store, we know things can get busy this upcoming holiday. You can count on us to be open and ready to help with any packing and shipping or anything else you might need. Is there anything you can't do? Um, actually, I don't have a good singing voice. <clears throat> the UPS... Nope. But our certified packing experts can pack and ship just about anything. At least that's good. The UPS Store. Be unstoppable. Most locations are independently owned. Product, services, pricing, and hours of operation may vary. See center for details. Come in today to get your holiday goodies there on time. Electricity. A big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor.
Welcome back. Financials trading generally in the green after hours right now, with the Fed releasing positive results from its annual bank stress test after the close. Leslie Picker joins us now with all the details. Leslie, uh, what did we learn? What are you most focused on? Hey, Mike, you just showed a big board of the biggest banks out there. They certainly fared quite well. Although all 23 banks that participated in this year's stress test stayed above their minimum capital requirements, the Fed said these banks have enough of a cushion to absorb the $541 billion in estimated losses from the hypothetical scenario to continue lending. The hypothetical scenario in this year's test involved a severe global recession with a 40% decline in commercial real estate prices and a 38% decline in housing prices. The unemployment rate rises to a peak of 10% in the test. Of those $541 billion in projected losses, $100 billion came from commercial real estate and residential mortgages. The Fed said that the banks in this year's test hold roughly 20% of office and downtown commercial real estate loans held by banks. Among the banks tested, Capital One would see the highest projected loan losses, largely from its credit cards and CNI loans, followed by Barclays U.S., Goldman Sachs, and Citi. Under stress, the aggregate common equity risk-based capital ratio that exemplifies the cushion against losses was projected to decline by 2.3 percentage points to a minimum of 10.1%. Fed Vice Chair for Supervision Michael Barr said in a statement that the results confirmed the banking system remains, quote, strong and resilient. We hear that uh, over the last few stress tests, last few annual stress tests. But he added that the stress test is only one way to measure that strength. He says they need to remain humble about how risks can arise and continue their work to ensure banks are resilient to a range of economic scenarios, market shocks, and other stresses. But the results of these tests greenlight capital return for banks that will announce uh, they will announce their own plans for buybacks and dividends as soon as Friday after the close. Although, Mike, I am told and analysts are saying that management teams are expected to be quite conservative on that front, given all the regulatory uncertainty that's out there with regard to Basel III revisions, the potential for additional regulation in the wake of those uh, failures, those bank failures in March. So there's a lot of uncertainty there that may encourage management teams to hoard that capital rather than give it out to shareholders right now. Yeah, you might think it's not the best look necessarily to be aggressive in terms of distributing capital at this point, given that we don't know what's happening with regulations. That comment, though, that you cited about being humble, about recognizing Mm -hmm. what potential uh, scenarios might be out there, is that a nod to what happened with the regional banks, which are not subject to the same uh, level of tests? I think it is a nod to what happened with the regional banks. This humility is something we saw after they released their report, their report, their kind of post-mortem looking into what exactly happened. They haven't taken full culpability, nor do most people believe that they should. But clearly there was a white space there that they they missed um, and, you know, weren't able to adequately prevent some of the failures that took place. Now, this year's test, interestingly, Mike, uh, the scenarios were published about a month before the March events. And also, this is an off year for some of the larger regionals that otherwise would be subjected to the test. So they call them uh, Category 4 banks. They're one step below uh, the 23 banks that were tested this year. So perhaps next year, we could see, um, you know, kind of more in terms of where they stand with regard to some of the the stress testing that the largest 23 uh, had to go through this year. Sure. Uh, I guess inevitably sort of fight the last war as you 
try to figure out what uh, what risks might be out there. Leslie, thanks so much. Uh, talk to you uh, in the morning. Let's bring in Anton Schutz, president and CIO at Menden Capital Advisors, for uh, for more on the group. Uh, Anton, good to talk to you. What's your your immediate takeaway in terms of the implications for a bank investor? Well, I mean, at the end of the day, it's exactly as Barr stated. You know, the banking system is, is sound, can take a big shock. Uh, and this is only the biggest banks in the country uh, with more to come. Right. Obviously, this test has to be re- re- redesigned to incorporate things like deposit runs and security prices. But most interestingly, under adverse scenarios, the securities uh, book actually benefits the yeah. bonds gain in value under uh, very stressed scenarios. And was the commentary about exposure to commercial real estate and, and even consumer credit reassuring to some degree? Because that seems like it's the constant uh, shadow that people are, are, are operating under, that what's to happen with commercial real estate? Sure. I mean, it, it is a shadow. And, you know, truly, this is a stock picker's environment. And these banks in particular, um, you know, have different geographies, different challenges and different opportunities. I mean, a lot of, you know, the smaller regional banks lend to, you know, medical buildings where, you know, the doctors and those practices are going to keep paying their bills. So it's very different than downtown real estate in Washington, D.C., New York or San Francisco or even Seattle and Portland. I mean, those are stress markets. You know, banks can take some hits there. Uh, a lot of losses will be on the insurance company books as well. You know, even outside the possibility of whatever shocks that we can either foresee or not foresee uh, and, and getting beyond the deposit flight that was really urgent back around the time of SVB, there is still this sense out there that, well, look, there's just going to be this drag on profitability and return on equity for a lot of the somewhat smaller banks for, for you know, some time to come. So how do you navigate that? So that's really interesting. I mean, if you look back on charts to very stressed periods in time for, for bank stocks, it actually says you should be buying them at these valuations on these price to books and price to earnings. But if you sort of navigate your way through Fed raising rates, the first you know, round of raises, banks earn more money. The second round, which we're in right now, banks earn less money as deposit pricing catches up. The third round is asset pricing catches up and banks actually start making more money. I'm not sure 24 estimates fully incorporate that. And I, I could see some banks, again, depending on when the Fed is done, uh, actually having better margins in the uh, later this year in the third and fourth quarters. And there's still some banks, just a few, that actually can make more money uh, even in this environment right now, even if the Fed raises a few more times. What are the characteristics of those types of banks that can earn more money? Sure. Um, you know, smaller, uh, more, more uh, uh, focused uh, deposits that are core, i.e. checking and and business accounts where they don't have to raise interest rates or not have to pay interest at all. Mm. Uh, and, you know, portfolios that may be variable in, in nature on their loan side. So uh, they actually, you know, their, their margin actually increases under scenarios of, of small hikes, these 25 basis point hikes that may or may not be coming. I, I think the Fed is done, but, mm-hmm. you know, it seems like they really uh, want to push another one out on this. Yeah, they don't want anyone to believe they're done, even if they are, uh, at least for now. Uh, Anton, uh, Stock Pickers Market Indeed, thanks very much. Appreciate the time. Great pleasure. Have a great night. All right. Uh, Don't go anywhere. Uh, There's much more ahead on this CNBC special, Taking Stock. Coming up, homing in. Are mortgage rates rattling consumers or is it all good in the hood? Plus, the latest on Activision, Microsoft and the FTC's efforts to hit pause. That and more when we return.
Welcome back. Take a look at the gains in some of the major home builders so far in 2023, far outpacing the S&P and even the tech-heavy Nasdaq. Mortgage applications also on the rise, up three straight weeks to reach their highest level since early May. So what does the latest data signal about the overall housing market? Here to break down all of this week's data is CNBC senior real estate correspondent Diana Olick. Diana. Well, Mike, mortgage demand, as you said, rose last week despite slightly higher interest rates, and the home builders are likely behind it. Applications for a mortgage to purchase a home rose 3% for the week. They were still 21% lower year over year. These applications, though, have increased for three straight weeks to the highest level since early May, despite still relatively high mortgage rates. An MBA economist pointed to strong new home sales in recent months. Of course, yesterday we got that report on May new home sales up 12% month to month and 20% higher than May of last year. This despite the average rate on the 30-year fixed rising slightly last week. Also interesting, the rate for 30-year fixed jumbo loans rose more sharply to 6.91% from 6.8. So the spread widened for the third straight week between conventional and jumbo loans, 16 basis points. That's all thanks to the credit crunch at regional banks where jumbos generally live. And that makes the higher end of the housing market less affordable. Now, mortgage rates haven't really moved much at all this week, still staying at the higher end of the range, but not breaking much higher despite stronger economic news. So they seem to still not be able to break through 7% again, although they did at the end of May, Mike. They did. So uh, sort of a tricky environment, but I guess that's a slight uh, comfort for now. Diana, stay with us. Let's bring in Jessica Louts. Uh, she is Deputy Chief Economist and Vice President of Research at the National Association of Realtors. And Jessica, um, higher rates, I guess buyers of new homes have been able to make their peace with them somehow uh, and, and by necessity, perhaps. But is there anything that might bring out more inventory that can allow the, an easing of this logjam that we've seen with uh, existing home sales? Well, certainly we also have seen building permits up slightly, and I think that that's an encouraging sign. We do need more housing inventory. We really have been underbuilding in the U.S. for a substantial period of time, and it's going to take a lot of inventory to actually meet the demand that's sitting on the sidelines right now. Slightly lower prices for new homes, I think, is certainly encouraging, and that's bringing in home buyers into that type of product. You mentioned adding inventory through building, but what about just the, the reluctance of people who are locked at lower mortgage rates to put their homes on the market? Is there, is there anything that can over time change that? Well, certainly they have golden handcuffs. I think there's a lot of reluctance, a lot of separation anxiety from that low interest rate to be able to move. But we have to remember the main reason why people move is because something in their life changes. So whether that's a new job or a new baby, it's going to mean that that person is going to have to move and find a new home to accommodate them. And that could be maybe a larger property. It could also be a retiree who needs to downsize and actually be closer to the grandbaby. Diana, um, just paint us a picture of the overall affordability uh, outlook at this point and, and where it leads us to, to, to think volumes are going to go at this point. Well, affordability is still not great at all. And in fact, it's getting a little worse. We got the S&P Case-Shiller Home Price Report this week as well. It's kind of backward looking, but it actually is showing prices gaining again for three straight months. 
They peaked last June. They came back in the fall and they're very, very slightly down 0.2 percent year over year in April. But again, they're rising again. And the reason the builders are doing so well is not just because they're lowering home prices a little bit, which they are, but also they're buying down mortgage rates. So they're allowing people not to have to have that six and a half percent or seven percent rate. They're buying into the five percent range, which gives them that cushion for a year or two for the buyers getting into the market. And that was really huge for the builders in the fall and continues now. We're actually seeing builders do less of that because they're getting so much demand. They don't have to. But again, on the existing home side, remember, it's all that supply and demand crunch. When we say that we're really low supply, we are half the supply where we were in 2019 pre-pandemic. And even in 2019, we will we were below historical averages because we'd been underbuilding for so long. So it's going to take a long time for that supply situation to come back up. And until it does, prices are going to have a floor, no question. Yeah. Um, Jessica, Diana mentioned uh, that, you know, the, the regional bank perhaps reluctance to, to lend as freely is, is pinching a little bit on uh, things like jumbo mortgages. Are you concerned about financing availability or is that something that at least this market has going for it, that there is still an ability to, to leverage housing? I mean, lending is still incredibly tight, but I think one of the things that we have to remember right now, too, is we're also in a unique environment where a lot of baby boomers have a lot of housing equity. The typical consumer who's been in their home for a decade has about $200,000 in housing equity. And what we see right now is for older boomers, half of them are paying all cash. A quarter of the market overall is paying all cash. So, yes. Interest rates matter. They absolutely do, especially to first-time home buyers. But I think they matter less today than they had historically. Interesting. And Diana, you know, there's this other wrinkle where it seems as if uh, there's maybe it's anecdotal, maybe it's actually statistically relevant. Uh, people choosing not to sell a home when they have to move, but to rent it out because the rental market's been so strong. What are we what are we to, to make of that? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. We don't have the numbers on that exactly. But, you know, I've talked to a lot of folks who are thinking about downsizing and they're saying, you know what, maybe I'll keep the home if I don't need the equity to buy the next home or even if I'm going to rent. The rental market, especially the single family, we're seeing apartment rents ease up quite a bit, but the single family rental market is so strong. And it's kind of this this uh, cyclical thing of if you can't buy a home, you have to rent a home because you can't afford to buy a home. So then the rents go up and mm. it makes it even less affordable to rent the home, but it's still cheaper than buying the home. If that made any sense. No, it does. So, yeah, it, people are saying, why not rent? No, it's it's a fascinating kind of uh, twisty little <laughs> little cycle we're in right here for housing. <laughs> Diana, uh, Jessica, thanks very much. Thank you. Sure. All right. Let's take another look at how the markets ended the day. Stocks closing mixed with just two trading days left in the first half of the year. The Dow dropping about 70 points. That was its seventh negative session in the last eight, although it's down less than 2% over that span. The S&P virtually flat on the day, but the Nasdaq capturing a small gain up nearly three-tenths of a percent. And the IPO market continuing to show some signs of life after Korean barbecue chain Gen Restaurant Group's debut today. That stock closing up nearly 28 uh, percent in its first day of trading. But it is not the only deal we're watching this week. Thrift store operator Savers Value Village pricing its IPO tonight at $18 a share. That was above the expected range. That stock is slated to begin trading on the New York Stock Exchange tomorrow under the symbol SVV. As we head to a break, check out this mystery chart. It is a stock up nearly 46% since January and on the cusp of, cusp of a historic achievement. We'll reveal the name when the CNBC special returns. And stay tuned for Last Call beginning at 7 p.m. Eastern time right here on CNBC. We'll be right back.
Welcome back. That mystery chart we mentioned before the break, well, it's Apple, specifically the market capitalization of Apple, which is now sitting just below the $3 trillion mark. That's a level that it almost got to about a year and a half ago in January of 2022 when it, uh, the overall market was about to peak as well. Uh, it's also double the level of three years ago, June of, uh, of 2020. Uh, it hit a trillion and a half for the first time. Also started the past decade around half a trillion. So a massive outperformer. Also a slight wrinkle here. We don't actually know in real time what the market cap is because we don't always know how many shares are outstanding. And it's really relevant when it comes to Apple, because Apple is one of the most aggressive companies in buying back its stock and shrinking the number of shares outstanding. So the price has to go ever higher uh, to have it multiplied by the number of shares we have today to get to that $3 trillion mark. Did not quite uh, get there by most measures today. By the way, also, Apple represents 7.5% weighting in the S&P 500. So uh, more than one in every $14 invested in the S&P is in Apple shares. Coming up, two top CEOs taking the stand in a major courtroom battle today. Microsoft CEO Satya Nadella and Activision CEO Bobby Kotick testifying in the FTC's legal challenge against the company's nearly $69 billion merger. We'll bring you the latest headlines and what is at stake when we return. Welcome back. The Federal Trade Commission's hearing into Microsoft's attempted takeover of Activision saw some high-profile players take the stand today. Microsoft CEO Satya Nadella and Activision CEO Bobby Kotick both testified earlier today. Our Steve Kovac has been tracking the legal battle, joins me now with the latest. So, Steve, what uh, what did we learn today from these guys? Yeah, so Nadella finished his testimony just last hour, Mike, and the FTC side here alleging Microsoft has plans to be a dominant player in cloud gaming, pointing to comments Nadella made on earnings call and internal memos. In those comments, Nadella boasted about market share gains Xbox has made in some markets. FTC also showing an email where Nadella said he wanted to, quote, use every opportunity to make cloud streaming more mainstream, adding it's best for Microsoft in the long run. Now, this back Except the FTC's arguments, Microsoft is a strong competitor to PlayStation and plans to turn cloud gaming into the next dominant gaming platform. Microsoft side asking Nadella, though, about exclusive games, something Nadella said he was against but has to do in order to keep Xbox competitive with market leaders Sony and Nintendo, saying of the fight over exclusive for each platform, quote, I have no love for that world. And if it were up to him, he said he'd eliminate exclusives on consoles. As for Kodak testifying earlier in the day, saying he regretted not launching his company's biggest title, Call of Duty, on Nintendo platforms. So, Mike, tomorrow's the last day of this hearing, and the clock is ticking for the judge to make her decision. The deadline for the deal to close is July 18th, and we're not even done with the U.K. regulators. That's right. So that would be the next step. Now, the market is still off balance here a little bit. Right. Now, the Activision stock has, has picked up some ground, but it's still $12 short of the, of the bid price. Right. $95 is the, is the magic number we're sure. looking for here. And, yeah, it's, it, it ticked up a little bit during this, this court hearing, but everyone's watching the CMA even more than this. Right. Um, now, the, the Microsoft has made some verbal commitments, right, to essentially say we're written not going to... Written commitments, too. Oh, written, okay. Yeah, so they, they cut a deal with Nintendo saying we're going to put Call of Duty for 10 years. They've offered the same deal to, to Sony. Sony has rejected it. Sony does not want this deal to happen right. for obvious reasons, even though they're the market leader. So this is a really squishy case. The, F, the burden is on the FTC, Mike, to prove 
that this is an illegal transaction. And look, I've been listening to four days of testimony, about to listen to a fifth day. Right. I don't know if they're making their case yet. You can't tell if the FTC has the upper hand. It, it's really hard. And again, the burden is on them. And the judge has asked some really tough questions, especially for their expert witness. So who knows where she's leaning, though? Yeah, no, it's, uh, there's it, definitely some suspense in here. So we'll, we'll keep an eye on it. I know you will, Steve. Absolutely. Thanks very much. Thanks. Appreciate it. All right. That is going to do it uh, for us here on Taking Stock. Last call starts right now with Contessa Brew. The spirit of performance defines Acura. And now it's electric. Introducing the all-electric ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. While what powers their cars may change, the energy that makes Acura never will. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system and up to 313-mile range on a single charge, and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is everything they said electric could never be. It was built with the driver in mind, just like Acura's been doing since the beginning. We could talk all day, but the only way to experience this electric performance is to drive it yourself. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com.